Hi friends, welcome to the Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Ben Gosden. Ben is an elder in the South Georgia Annual Conference. He's been serving Trinity United Methodist, a reconciling congregation in historic Savannah, Georgia for the last seven years. He's married and a father of two. In this episode, you're gonna hear a lot, a lot of words for sure kids in the background, and some long pauses. Ben's witness is its own mic drop. Ben is a pastor who affirms, welcomes, and celebrates queer folks, and he advocates for their inclusion in the church. And he is also a person who was raised and nurtured in a part of the US, a part of the United Methodist Church that has a very different perspective on many of the issues that he feels strongly about. He's not afraid to challenge his colleagues and he doesn't shrink back from living in the tension of his context. He's theological, practical, compassionate, and clear-eyed about the future he sees for United Methodist. We cover a ton of ground in this interview and there is so much to learn from it. So you already know what I'm going to say. Grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really great interview with Ben Gosden. Ben Gosden, thanks so much for joining me today. How you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's a little bit overwhelming right now leading up to annual conference, but you know. Tis the season. Tis the season. We do what we do. Um, ben, I have uh, appreciated you from afar and, and, and we've been able to connect a few times. I remember first seeing you on Twitter and uh, you... Uh, are in the classic Southern gentleman bow tie um, in that in that particular profile pic. Um, and remember many of the takes that you would have around UMC issues. And we can be honest that sometimes I would I would give you side eye from my sure. side of the <laughs> of the cell phone as I'm looking at some of your takes. But I really appreciated so much of where you where you're coming from, and and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Just the unique place that you are in right now, and and I've really appreciated in the last several months the ways that you are trying to live in the tension of of the multiple worlds that you have the ability to speak to. Sure. Um, so that's a lot of why I brought you on. Um, well, I appreciate uh, it. And you know, whenever people say I met you first in Twitter, I like to think of it as uh, Twitter is like we've all seen each other in the hospital together. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, we're doing well in the hospital. And sometimes, you know, our butts are hanging out of the hospital gowns a little bit. And so yeah. the fact that we can say we enjoyed meeting on Twitter uh, really does mean something. 
It, I, I definitely enjoyed meeting you uh, both on Twitter, but also hanging out with you in person. Yeah. But so something that I don't know about you is is how you became a follower of Jesus and found yourself in the United Methodist Church. So I'd love to hear just a little bit of God's provenient grace in your life and bringing you into our denomination. Yeah, um, it is so provenient that I was in the United Methodist Church uh, before I was in this world. Um, I am literally a cradle Methodist. My mother uh, was a part of a United Methodist Church as a teenager, president of the UMYF, you know, all the stuff, um, came back as a young adult and uh, and was active in, in her church. Uh, she was a part, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. I was a part of a, a neighborhood church plant from the 1960s, which, you know, as you know, a lot of United Methodists conferences and communities did this. They went into new neighborhoods, planted mm -hmm. a church. My mm -hmm. church was one of them. My mother was a part of a Sunday school class cleverly named uh, the Pairs and Spares, a bunch of 20-somethings that were either newly married or single, but soon to be married. And some of them married each other. Um, and then I was a part of a 1980s baby boom in mm -hmm. my church. Um, so there has never been a day in my 40 plus years of living uh, that I have not been a United Methodist. Um, I was baptized, was born in mid-November. I was baptized on a cold Sunday morning in, uh, in mid-December in Advent. Uh, I was, I guess, four, four or five weeks old. Um, Reverend Dick Reese, who still lives today, is one of our retired clergy in the South Georgia Annual Conference, um, you know, put cold water on my bald little head um, and, and named me uh, uh, as part of the family of God and, and uniquely as part of a family, a community of faith, a family, uh, in the U United Methodist connection. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's in my blood, it's in my DNA. Mm. Um, it's, it really is who I am. And, and I'm coming into my own now really kind of seeing that as I've always compartmentalized it as like, it's just what we did on Sundays or it's what my family did, or it's part of, a calling to vocation or, you know, it's my livelihood now or whatever it is, but, but really all of those are outpourings of the fundamental truth that um, I, you know, I've been named and through my baptism, um, you know, called it as one of God's children and uniquely formed in the United Methodist tradition. So I, I, I am increasingly grateful every day for that. Uh, maybe more so in this crazy season, which I know we'll talk about more, but maybe more so. Um, I'm, you know, you in chaos tends to make you grateful um, for for the things that maybe we take for granted sometimes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been a Methodist my whole life. Confirmed, you know, uh, in UMYF. Uh, I did have a stint in college, like most of us do, that we we don't really want to go to church, and I partied, and you know, did the college thing. Yeah, yeah. Out of that, I was just also rebelling against. Um, I grew up in an old school home. My my mother was raised. She was a, an oopsie baby in the 1950s, so her mother was 40 when she had her which was very, I mean, it's normal now, but it's very rare in the mid 1950s. <clears throat> so in many ways, my mother's a boomer who was raised by old school, greatest generation, you know, type. Yeah, parents. Yeah. And so it, we had very old school ways of growing up in the church. You had regular clothes, quote unquote, and Sunday clothes. And you did not wear your Sunday clothes on regular days. And vice versa, you don't wear regular clothes to church. This you put on your best for God. 
Um, I hated it because I remember as a kid, I had buddies who could wear polo shirts and, and shorts and my mother wouldn't let me. Um, Sunday shoes, like these are only to be worn on Sundays. Like this is, you know, I, I remember as a teenager being put on restriction um, and I, I became, I actually, it was a good reverse psychology on my mom's part because I grew to love church because my mom would say, you can't go anywhere Friday and Saturday, but you can go to UMYF on Sunday nights. So I lived for Sunday night because it was my only social interaction if I was on restriction as a teenager was I got to go to church and see people um, and thank goodness for that. So, But I'm sure you weren't on restriction very much. Oh, you have I'm no sure. idea. I, I had a rough, <laughs> I had a rough uh, uh, I've always thought I was the smartest, most clever and funniest person around. And that does not bode well when you're a middle schooler um, trying to trying to navigate with teachers and you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, they didn't always appreciate my humor. Let's just say that. <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, no, it, it, uh, I could, all, I've always been able to talk fast and, uh, it got me, I, my be my grandma would say, uh, my butt couldn't always deliver what my mouth would promise. I hear so, that. Gosh. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's been an interesting journey. Um, I felt called to ministry at a young age, but I think a lot of that was a projection of a loving mother who loved the church. Um, and so when you're a loving mother who loves the church, who probably in her own right felt a call to ministry, but she was female of a different era and she took a different path. You know, what more could you ask for than a son? You could project some of those feelings on too. Yeah. And so I'm sure some of my calling came as a projection of my mom. And so later in life, I said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And then a series of life circumstances in my early twenties brought me back to, to my original calling. And, and I was a political science major in college, which I joke that that probably taught me as much as seminary did for living in the church. Cause political mm. science is simply learning the art of learning to deal with people. That's mm. it. It's the art of learning to work and live with people. Um, so did that, went to seminary at Candler. Um, I took a slow route through undergrad because, uh, I, again, I had that phase of having fun and, and didn't mm -hmm. go to class much when I did that. Um, went to seminary, of course, got married somewhere in the midst of that. Um, and, yeah, haven't looked back quite as much. Um, you know, I've, I've been on this path of being a United Methodist pastor, you know, since I was about 28. So. It's it's a journey. It's it, it's a ride. And, and certainly within even within that and even within my own ministry, which we can talk about some uh, even more, I've had monumental changes within myself, too. So. So I'm, I am curious, then. What are some things that you've brought with you into your current ministry that was given to you sort of growing up? Mm. And in that, in that space, I know I, and you know, I know that there are some things that for everybody, <laughs> you are not the same person that you were when you were baptized, <laughs> but obviously, like not the same person when you were confirmed. Um, but what, what's still with you sure. from from that from the church that raised you? Probably, um, I'll say three things, and I'll start with probably the the. The quickest one first, which is a sense that church is always about relationships and family. I was at a mid-sized church that was just big enough that there was a lot of people, but it was small enough that everybody knew everybody. 
but it wasn't one of those, um, you know, incestuous, like single cell churches that everyone's related somehow. There were branches that went out and you knew and, and kind of migrated among them. But but it was a fun church to grow up in, to be a kid in, to have a youth group in and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't so large that it, you got overwhelmed, um, you know, and, and, and people made investments in me growing up outside of my family. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Reggie Joyner and the whole Orange curriculum. And one of the tenets of Orange is that there should be a five to one ratio for every kid, that every one kid should have five adults beyond their family who invest in them at some point in their life. And the odds of them continuing in their faith into adulthood is greater when that happens. And I was certainly a product of that, that people, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, mentors, friends of family, they invested in me. And so Mm -hmm. the relational aspect of church um, matters a lot to me because my home church had a very strong sense of community and relationship. The other two things and probably two people, I should say, that that really had a huge impact on me. One is that my pastor from the age of five until I was 20 years old. So so 15 year tenure, which was kind of unheard of, but but it, it worked for a long time, um, was Reverend Marsha Cochran, who was the first female ordained in the South Georgia Annual Conference. Um, mm. Marsha was a trailblazer in our annual conference and she was my pastor. I, I reached the point, Derek, that when I was like 20, hearing a man preach in the pulpit was the strangest thing in the world. Yeah. Like I was so used to a female voice in the pulpit that it was weird. She also preached and I, st- I do this to, to this day. People say, how do you preach 12 minute sermons? I said, my home, my home church pastor, Marsha preached 10 mm. and on communion Sunday, she could do it in seven and they were great. Great sermons. Um, I grew up with short preaching, but it was to the point. And so this whole like 25, 35 minute movement that a lot of guys like, I'm like, oh, my God, that's so long. You're talking. How do you do that? Uh, no, we I grew up with 15 or less was was wow. the standard. And hearing a male voice was weird to me. So uh, that was really neat. Marsha. And there were many, many things. Um, I specifically remember. When I was probably, I guess I'd have to do the math, maybe nine years old, I remember parts of the sermon that she gave the Sunday after Rodney King was beat. She 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 had this courageous sense of social activism might be a little much because I don't know if she would call herself a social activist, but she was not afraid to voice these things from the pulpit. So like the Sunday after Rodney King was beat. I mean, she gave a sermon on racial justice to a middle-class white suburban, I mean, cracker church that you could ever ask for. And she she gave it to us. And you know what? And and some people may not have liked it. I don't remember if there was a fallout, um, but people grew to love her. And she certainly drew people into the church and partly because she was not afraid. Now, I mean, she was the first ordained woman in the conference. It was, I mean, by that point, she was, had pretty thick skin. I mean, she was hard. Yeah. She was hardcore, yeah. man. She wasn't afraid. So I remember that. I remember the Sunday, and it was at the very end of her tenure, but I remember, I remember the Sunday after 9-11, and she preached a sermon on how God also loved the terrorist. 
and it got carried in the newspaper. You know, wow. part of it, a big chunk of it. They did an article on how churches were responding and all that. And a big chunk of her sermon got got carried in the local newspaper. Um, it was things like that that um, I, I guess was really formative for me looking back. Um, another one I remember she did a Mother's Day sermon um, um, on, on the whole Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. And she did her whole Mother's Day sermon on and she she hated cliche holidays. Like, that's another thing I think I picked up was she just did not. She just preached the lectionary. She's like, I hate all these holidays. But she did one year a Mother's Day sermon where she talked about Ishmael and his mother and how God calls for us to extend love to alternative looking families. And when it was powerful for my mother at the time, because my, my parents had just gotten divorced and they were probably now, of course, like half the folks her age and her church are now divorced. But but at that time in the mid 90s, <laughs> yeah. my mom was among the first in our church <clears throat> to be divorced. Mm. And um, and so it was a very powerful sermon, I remember, for my mom. Um, and it was a courageous one that she she talked about alternative families and and God's love for them and provision. So I, that was really formative for me growing up. And, and also, I. I you asked this, and I don't think I've thought about this until right now. Marsha's brother is a preacher who's now retired. She grew up at Bainbridge First United Methodist Church. And I mean, you want to talk about a dot in the wool United Methodist. I learned at an early age um, what it meant to be, I mean, everything about being a United Methodist from confirmation um, she would do even even around the church year. Her children's sermons a lot throughout the year were seasons, learning the seasons of the church year, the colors of the church year, or the symbols of the church year. What do all these things mean? Um, I remember we learned as a kid that Lent was uh, had the color purple. And the way you could remember that is that's the color of Lent in your dryer. Uh, you know, the the the, the vent there is <laughs> that's how you remember it's the color, you know, for that purple's the color for Lent. I remember it's classic. Epiphany, yeah, I remember Epiphany. We always learned Epiphany was the most fun season to name because you could spit when you say it. Epiphany Sunday, you know, and 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 the season of Epiphany and and we talked about light and all these. It was just this wonderful developmentally great way of shaping children to love the church and to know what's going on. Like that was a cool thing that I remember. She had me as a communion assistant for years. I was an acolyte for years. Like she really put my gifts to work in the church, whether I wanted them to be put to work or not. Um, and that was very formative. Um, another thing, and this links into a, another person, um, in, in, in my life is um, she introduced me to Reverend Joe Robertson, who was at South Columbus United Methodist Church, which was in a transitional neighborhood, which you and I know that's code for used to be a middle class white neighborhood turned mostly black neighborhood. That's it. Yeah. Joe, Joe was brought to South Columbus to close it. And he hmm. was a, a African-American pastor and he took it from a church of about 20 to a church of over 600. And he even got elected to the school board and, you know, other things. Um, and Marcia was dear friends with Joe. They were very close friends. And, and so when South Columbus had their first vacation Bible school in over 40 years, I was about 12. And Marcia took a team of uh, ladies 
to go volunteer and help. And she recruited me to lead recreation, which was their way of saying, we don't want to go out in the mid-June South Georgia heat. So let's let this kid take these kids out and and, and we'll watch from the windows. Sounds about right. Yep. Yeah. And he play kickball with them and, you know, all the other stuff. Um, but I got to know Joe and the really, really neat serendipitous thing was that Joe stayed at South Columbus for years and 10 years later became my mentor when I began the candidacy process. So I go before DCOM. And 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 I was told later I went and, you know, they approved me and it's OK. This is where we assign a mentor. And, and Joe was an elder statesman in the room at this point. And and before they could even talk through it, he just told everybody, I'm going to be his mentor. I don't want to hear any other names, but I'll take care of them. And he did. They said, all right, Joe, if you want them, you can have them. Um, he was my mentor. His wife, Beverly, has this beautiful singing voice. She sang at my wedding. Um, it meant the world to me that Joe was there. Joe was, um, I think my second year of seminary, he was tragically killed in an automobile accident. He went on the cabinet after he was, um, at South Columbus and he was traveling, uh, one Saturday between charge conferences as DS is due circuit riding. And, um, and he was in a car accident that, uh, that, that tragically killed him. And it's sad for many reasons. I lost a dear friend and a mentor who really helped shape me. Um, but the connection lost. Joe was best friends with James Swanson, who's Mississippi's mm. outgoing bishop, who was also a product of South Georgia. They went to seminary together. James preached his eulogy. Um, they were best friends. Um, and um, Joe was headed to the Episcopacy. He was James had had just gone and, and Joe was a few years behind, but he was he was he was going on the cabinet. I mean, as we know, the way th these things sometimes happen behind closed doors is um, not that you're not invested in your superintendency, but there's also a wink and a nod going. You need to be here for a couple of years before you run for bishop. Yeah, but he was going to run. He was, mm. I think, number two on the delegation the year before he died. So mm. he it, it was coming. Um, Joe knew how to navigate between the white world and the non-white world mm -hmm. in a seamless way. And he, and he was unabashed and probably not always politically correct about it. Um, but he, he would tell you, this is my white preaching voice when I'm with white people. He said, now I don't <laughs> preach like this when I'm with my people, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he knew how to do it in this seamless way. Um, and he wasn't afraid to challenge people. And he wasn't afraid to speak for what was right and for who he was and who the church could be. Um, and one of the greatest acts of grace that 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 I remember, Joe was um, arrested when he was in Columbus. He was out walking. He was religiously an evening walker. He would walk, walk, walk. And he got picked up because a cop thought he fit the identity of a person of interest in a robbery uh, in the neighborhood. <clears throat> so they picked him up. Joe tried to say, you know, I'm Reverend Joe Robertson. I, I pastor South Columbus. I'm a member of the school board, you know, all these things. And they cuffed him aggressively and put him in the back of a cop car. And he sat there for a couple of hours. Finally, everything resolved um, and they figured it out. As an onlooker, I've always marveled at the grace he must have mustered sitting back there in the back of that cop car, knowing how right he was and how wrong they were. 
and he still chose a path of, of peace. And he moved forward. Hmm. Now he may have had conversations and whatever with their supervisors. And I don't know. Um, but that was powerful to see how he weathered such injustice with dignity. These stories you just told, Reverend Marsha, Reverend Joe, I mean, this, this, is, this is the stuff. Um, because these are- he was are a nationally united Methodist too, by the way. Mm-hmm. He was very big on, and he was basically a church plant. I mean, the way they re- revitalized the church, every step of the way, it was united Methodist. Mm. He was very formed in his tradition and loved it. Okay, so you're telling me about the first ordained clergywoman in the South Georgia Conference, and you're telling me about a strong, prominent black clergyman in the South Georgia Conference. And these are the things you're taking you've taken with you. These are the these are some of the voices and some of the nurturing that has made you who you are today. So but you live in a context called the South Georgia Conference. Yep. So some of us listening think we know what South Georgia must be like. Doing ministry in South Georgia, um, we, we think we know what it must be like. But you just told me two stories that probably at least disrupt some of the narrative of what some people think about South Georgia. So tell me... Tell me what it's like to do ministry in South Georgia. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking about this before we started recording. When you referenced my bow tie, <laughs> you know, Southern yeah. thing. Um, the older I get and the more I grow to love the deep South, even with its flaws, mind you, um, it really goes back to that whole thing. Like, you, you know, you can say, listen, I know my family is kind of jacked up and I can say that, but don't you say it if you're not in the family kind of thing. <laughs> and, and in the South, we live in this paradoxical world that says two very different things can be true at the same time. You know, and Southerners have been doing this. For ages. I, I remember one of the um, when I was a kid, I was enamored with Bill Clinton when he ran for president because mm. he did two things that blew the media's mind when he first started. And I'm sure for a previous generation, Jimmy Carter did this, too. He was miles smarter than anybody on stage or anyone interviewing him. I mean, there's stories that Clinton would sit and do the New York Times crossword, the Sunday Times crossword in ink. He would just, he could just, he brain is huge. And people tend to have this idea that Southerners can be bumpkins. We talk slower. We, we, we tell stories. We do, you know, do these things. And I remember as a kid loving Bill Clinton because I knew how smart he was. It was so evident. And at the same time, he talked like me Hmm. and he said things the way that I was used to hearing them said, being said, not in, you know, it just, People notice my accent when I speak. 
I remember being in North Georgia in seminary. I was interning at a church and, and a mentor there. And, and, and he was we were talking and he said uh, he said to me once, he said, you know, Ben, with that accent of yours, I'm not sure you'd get into some pulpits here in North Georgia. Mm. And I said, that's funny, because with this accent, I'm pretty sure if I didn't have it, I couldn't get into some pulpits in South Georgia. <laughs> and we'll talk more about how that sort of proved true in the last year as I spent time in churches across South Georgia trying to say why they should stay United Methodist. Um, so there's a paradoxical way of living in South Georgia that I would say are the are the assumptions people have about us being a certain way, having certain struggles with inclusion, having certain mindsets you know, stereotypes and all of that. Are those true? To which I would say probably a lot of them. Yeah. To some degree or another. Um, I think that, that they probably are true, but is there more to the story to which I would say? Absolutely. One of the beautiful and, and richest parts of living in South Georgia is knowing the complexities of the deep South even if they don't always come true when it comes to reporting of demographics or exit polls or how red your state is or not, or whatever it may be. Um, there is always a complexity that lives underneath the surface. You know, in our red blue world, I would say that the South Georgia annual conference is a whole lot more purple than people would expect. Hmm. I remember a few years ago, a mother from Plains, Georgia, Plains, Georgia, talking about her gay son and how important it was for him to feel welcome in the life of the church. And when I tell people, too, that outside of the conference who, who just kind of seem gobsmacked, I'm like, there are gay kids born all over South Georgia. You know, um, mm -hmm. and one of the things that's really interesting, you know, using the, the issue of racial justice. We haven't always gotten it right, but one of the things that I believe a lot of our communities have at least been formed by is we have been forged by the fire that says we live elbow to elbow with one another. We have to learn to figure out how to do this. We don't always get it right. But we at least have to learn how to coexist. A lot of times the assumptions from people of what the South is or isn't, especially with like racial justice, comes from people who live in a part of the country that black folks don't really live. There aren't many of them there. So it's mm -hmm. like, well, sure, it's mm -hmm. easy from your monolithic community to say what's wrong with us. We're living elbow to elbow with each other. And and there literally is a train track that runs through town that divides this side from that side. But there's also stories of how collaboration has happened, how trailblazers have emerged, how people on both sides of the tracks have been the first white, the first black, the first to reach across to say, you know, we can we can learn to do this as a society or, or not, but we're better if we do. I mean, certainly there's always room to grow, but I would say ministry in the South Georgia Annual Conference has always been in my experience, a very beautiful thing, even if we struggle with that beauty and what to do with it. Hmm. Um, you know, God is in our midst and sometimes we get in the way, 
but I can also tell you, you know, less publicized, but probably more powerful stories of the inbreaking of God also in the most unexpected ways. That's so clarifying, Ben. And I'm, I'm just reminded of even my upbringing of um, being in a predominantly African-American space, not predominantly, mm-hmm. uh, totally <laughs> African-American space. And while um, there was a lot to deal with and a lot to work through in the in the church I grew up in, in the environment I grew up in, the question was less about do we have queer people in our midst? And it was more how we want to talk about that right. outside of our church, um, how we want people to think of us. Um, and some of that I think gets complicated when those, you know, a part of that, you know, that group gets their voice back, right? And they start speaking up. And so it isn't just one voice now, it's, it's multiple voices. Well, and, and what's powerful, and it speaks to the complexities that we both have grown up in and in this region. I just, you know, lauded Bill Clinton as this, this paradox, and, and he was, and we can say for all the, the whatevers you want to say on the positive side, you know, he was a pragmatist, which Southerners tend to be. And sometimes that means choosing a momentary good that does not prove to be a long-term um, way of redeeming systems. You know, you look at Clinton okaying don't ask, don't tell. That became a cultural institution, you know, beyond the military. I grew up in a church that had gay people in it. I have my suspicions, but I would never know to this day because it was a don't ask, don't tell. Hmm. Now, the pastor may have known, Marsha may have known, I'm sure she did. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like, a culture that empowered people to bring their whole selves openly to the community of faith. Mm-mm. Wow. But, but, but it's that way with your brokenness too, right? Like it's mm-hmm. that way when, when life is going to hell, you don't talk. We it's don't ask, don't tell how you doing. Mm-hmm. Fine. Mm-hmm. I may be full, mm-hmm. full of it when I say that, but that's the polite thing to do. So, yeah, I mean, that's again, that's the complexity of our Southern way of living is 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 learning how to excavate underneath some of the um, politeness to say what's really happening here. Let's get into the rawness of 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 life together and life with God. So take me take me further on this journey, because at some point, Ben. Well, let me back up. I live in Jacksonville, which is considered to many to be a part of South Georgia, yeah. <laughs> depending on which part yeah. of Jacksonville, Florida you are yeah. in. Uh, so much of what you have said resonates. Um, and one of those things that uh, is a part of the two things can be true is that uh, the sense is that most of South Georgia United Methodism, which can also pull in some Northeast Florida United Methodism, mm-hmm. um, is that it trends towards a, what some might call a traditionalist perspective, others may call um, an evangelical Wesleyan perspective. Sure. 
that often is not uh, does does not support an idea around inclusion or full inclusion of queer folk in the church. <clears throat> so that that's 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 one thought. And then here's the other thought. This is two things can be true. You are, based on what I know about you, an affirming United Methodist. Yeah. So take me on that journey of how an affirming United Methodist emerges. And you may need to correct me again of my thoughts about a traditionalist South Georgia context, but take me on some of that journey of how you come to a place of affirming queer folk as a part of your um, way of doing ministry um, in the world. Yeah, it's a good question. I, <laughs> I think about a friend who told me recently, he said, if I brought you to my church and asked you this question, about 90% of what you would say, everybody in my church would be like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, and then you would say at the end about it also including gay people and they'd go, what? You know, as though, as though I'm some kind of alien. Um, I don't know a good answer for that question other than part of the complexity of me and my story and my DNA as a South Georgia United Methodist is sprinkled into that has been a good exposure to what an evangelical United Methodist looks like. Our call to reach people mm. for Jesus Christ. Um, so I tell people it's not even as much a justice issue for me, although justice is a component of this, but justice is really an outflow of a deeper mandate of the gospel. It's one expression of the gospel. So if you say, how do you come to be an affirming United Methodist in South Georgia? I would say, because these people taught me what evangelism should look like. I mean, I'm simply putting it into, hoping to, trying to put it into context and practice where I serve. But we live by this idea that, oh, we make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world and, you know, um, um, holy, spreading scriptural holiness across the land and blah, blah, blah. And they're great. They're great, you know, cliches and, and, and isms that we love to kind of kind of share. But I don't know. There's a part of me and the older I get, I think the more. The, the more I come to this, which is do we take ourselves seriously? Do we mean what we say? You know, I, I'm very sacramental. I, I, I believe the sacraments are two expressions, uh, two of the highest expressions of the means of grace. And I am reminded that at baptism, we baptize infants in large part because we believe that God's prevenient grace can claim this child before they're aware of it themselves. And that God's justifying grace works in and through the vows that their parents take as placeholders until they take them and reaffirm them for themselves at, at, at confirmation. Not one time, not one time do we ask a family, is this kid gay? Not once. Not in, church, in any church I've ever been in. Mm. Mm. So we don't ask if they're gay at baptism. We serve them communion. I mean, from the moment that they're, you know, we don't have this right of 
age of accountability or, you know, whatever, like the Catholics. I mean, it's an open table, right? I mean, so th- we, we say the means of grace are expressed in these ways. We don't ask about preconditions. Then we turn around and the two things in practice that, that the two practices that we're debating right now, ordination and marriage, are rooted both in one sacrament, baptism. That's it. So for me, and I've been spending this for a few years, get past all the talking past each other stuff. Theologically, what do we mean in these things? We acknowledge at your wedding that our liturgy says, you know, uh, something I, I should know this by heart. I just did a wedding this past weekend that, you know, that we come together in the grace of God as acknowledged in your baptism, we say in our liturgy, right? And at ordination, we say that your calling comes out of a, ba- there's a baptismal reaffirmation as part of the, the ordination rites. If we don't put preconditions on people at their baptism, I don't know. I, there's a part of me that just, I don't know. I kind of want to say, like, who the hell do we think we are to put preconditions on, you know, weddings and ordination? Whew. So what has it been like to be an affirming United Methodist in a space that is not affirming by and large? Um, <laughs> it's a paradox too. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you the, the difficult part quickly and I'll try to tell you the, the good parts quickly cause I'll, 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 I'll cry at the good parts. Um, It can be hard to love a family and a tradition that you're born out of and called into and and you're 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 granted space to live your calling within to then be told by colleagues that you're some kind of basically bastard within our community because you don't believe like we do. Um I had someone at at my ordination spread a petition to protest my ordination. I had somebody when I was appointed to this church, which was a LGBT affirming church before I got here. I didn't make it this way. This was, it was well known um, who guy grew up in this church and, you know, didn't agree with it and didn't like it and was mad and all this other stuff, you know, take his finger and put it in my chest, you know, essentially threatening what I do to his home church. Um, I've had people make assumptions about me and my theology um, in ways that are just unfair. Um, that said, what's also funny is, uh, and I may have learned this from Marsha, who was on our board of ordained ministry, who who had a reputation for being the hardest on women 
when they came through because she believed you needed to be that much of a cut above the men. So after I passed ordination and was ordained, of course, you know, every now and then you get rim groups and someone in the group is kind of, they, they kind of wink and nod at their rim leader and say, I kind of, and how do I not send up red flags? And of course it got to be this like, well, here, call Ben Gosden. He can tell you how to pass the board of ministry and be affirming. And mm-hmm. they would say, how do I write my answers in a way that doesn't send up red flags? And my response is use good theology, period. There's no trick. Because if you believe what you think you believe, then it's born out of good theology. This is biblical. This is this is the gospel. This is not about politics or or this group and that group and winning and arguments. This is about who Jesus is. Period. So, you know, I. I answer your question that yes, it's been difficult and 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 real. And it can be hard because you feel like a person without a home sometimes. But I know all of that and own it and at the same time say that is a drop in the bucket compared to what LGBT persons go through just to be included in their church, just to feel a part of the family of faith, just to say, I want to bring my whole self here. So I still have an incredible amount of privilege that even with those momentary hardships and, and difficulties and, and, and whatnot, it, it, there are people who, who, who come a whole lot further through a whole lot more. Um, the good things about serving an affirming church in South Georgia, for a lot of people in the conference, you can become a beacon. We have a lot of retired clergy who associate with our church and people say, you know, for your size church, you have a lot of retired pastors there. Why? And I said, because for the first time they get to be a part of an affirming church. They've always wanted to do it secretly, but our culture and our connection is such that you can't say it openly. And so now that they're retired, they can choose it and they choose it. That's fine. Um, I mean, I, I could go on forever and ever. The life transformation, the stories, um, the 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 sheer grace that LGBT people use and and offer in the life of the church, a church that doesn't love them fully sometimes, and they keep showing up, it is the damnedest thing to me. Every Sunday, there they are. So to be their pastor is a huge honor. Um, very, very humbling. Um and it motivates. I mean, and it also reminds me, like when I go to annual conference or if there's a conference politics or a meeting or a whatever, as much as I love the connection, I remember that the basic building block of the church is the local church. And it is it is the primary place where disciples are made. And so I know now that I, I can go and I can be me and I can represent our church and hopefully do it well. And if it doesn't go well, then I can come back to a place that loves me in return. And we do good ministry. And, you know, we welcome people of, of uh, various genders um, and life situations um, and allies. You know, people don't realize we grew a children's ministry largely of allies because people want to raise their kids in a church that teaches them to love their gay friends. That matters. 
And for a lot of families at, in, in the year 2023, if your church doesn't teach them, your their kids, how to love your gay friends, then those families are going to say the hell with it. I'll stay home. So the church really should hear that as a challenge and a mandate to reach out in new and better ways if you're not already doing so, because it matters to those families. It matters to those kids. And that generation, I think, is going to be the generation that finally buries this disagreement in a way that says, look, this is normal. You're either here or you're not, but we we're going to we're going to all kind of divide. We're going to be where we're going to be. And it's not going to be a don't ask, don't tell anymore. So I don't know if that answers your question. It, it, it It's challenging to be an affirming United Methodist in South Georgia. It is wonderfully life giving. I also get stories from far stretches of our annual conference. I, I went to churches to share why I'm staying United Methodist. And I, and I know part of why I got invited is, is um, you know, cisgendered white male with this accent. So their pastor was like, well, he won't frighten them to death. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's one of them. Mm-hmm. And the stories that I would hear people in their 80s coming up to me in tears saying, I feel like my church is making me choose between a church that I'm the fifth generation member of over my daughter. And they're brokenhearted over it. And, and, and I don't have an answer for that other than I am so sorry. I don't, I wish that I could make this easier for you. Um, but you're privy to stories from voices that often live on the margins. So it, it as frustrating as it can be some days, I think it ultimately gives me a whole lot of hope. Let's take a quick break. Ben, do you remember where you were when the traditional plan passed at the special session in 2019? I do. I was sitting on a stool, um, running my son's bath. It was the evening. That vote took all day to get to it. I remember. Of course, there were the threats of we're going to keep this. They were filibustering until the monster trucks showed up or whatever, whatever it was that was coming in the arena. Um, <clears throat> it finally went, and I was following very closely on Twitter and saw how close uh, it was and how it did not pass. Um, yeah, I know I, I, I can close my eyes and physically see myself looking at my phone, sitting on a small green stool next to the bathtub with running water and my heart sinking through my chest. Yeah. I'm curious what the reception was in South Georgia, but specifically at your congregation that you were serving. Well, my immediate thought was that Christ Church Episcopal is about to pick up about half of my church, you know, down the street that they're going to leave. I was just paranoid that that this was it. And again, this 
the saving grace of serving and affirming church with people is I began to get text messages from members, many of whom were LGBT, who were also following along, who texted me very quickly to say things like, don't worry about this. We're going to keep being who we are. This will change soon. There is, and it's, it's one of these powerful moments of they pastored their pastor because I had put such emotional stock in this thing. And then when it didn't come to fruition, um, I was brokenhearted for them, for us, for the connection, you know. And they were like, Ben, we've been this way. We're going to keep being this way. We'll keep pushing this. Don't worry. Um, that was truly powerful. I, 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 of course, talked about it the next Sunday at worship. Um, got a little teary, I think, because I'm, I'm, I'm a sensitive guy. Many of them got teary. But it really provided this beautiful moment that we you know, really as a community, you know, experience the realness of what, you know, a balm and Gilead can bring you. Um, that you can be disappointed, but not hopeless. So we, we, we began to trudge on from there. Now, I will say that within a couple of months, another reconciling church in our community had begun and, and completed the disaffiliation process they were the first church out of South Georgia to leave. Um, and they're an independent church now. Um, and, and they were reconciling and still very much are affirming. Um, we got our disaffiliation numbers. We asked for them. Uh, we were one of the first ones to do that. I had a meeting. I had a meeting with, uh, and, I, and I purposely called about a dozen of our LGBT members and, and didn't have a, a straight person in the room. And I said, listen, guys, I, this is about y'all. I hate that it's about y'all, but this is about y'all. <laughs> you know, we we want to be the best church we can be for you. And 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 I just want to hear you tell me what for you. I don't want to assume what's best. You know, Derek, one of my frustrations, even today, we talk a lot about LGBT members. We don't listen to them. We don't give them voice to talk. We don't ask them what is it like for you to be a United Methodist, right? I wanted them to tell me that and not assume that I, I knew because that's what privileged straight people tend to do. We just assume we know what's best for everybody, whether it's progressive or traditionalist. We just assume. And it was so funny in good Southern, a moment of good Southern pragmatism, they said, Ben, that amount of money? My God, that's a lot. We could be doing a lot for missions with that amount of money. We're fine. You know, no, I, we don't want to, at that time it was, I don't know, it was six figures. It was somewhere in the $250,000 range. And they said, no, we don't want to spend the church's money on this. You know, please don't spend our tithes and offerings on this. Now, I'm not saying that's what every LGBT person would feel, but but ours, that's how they responded. And part of that was they also said, we feel loved here. We feel accepted here. We 
We want the denomination to change, yes, but that's not the end all and be all for us. We're good. So we stopped the process. Now, had we not been such a historic church with historic precedents in the conference and beyond, I mean, we have roots that go back to John Wesley himself. Um, we might have had a different attitude, but divorcing ourselves of that United Methodist history, and of course, there was not an alternative for affirming churches that was in the Methodist tradition. GMCs are at least carving out a space where they're, they're going to claim to be a branch of the Methodist tradition. There was not one for affirming churches. And so our folks said, we're Methodist. We got historic signs. We're on the historic John Wesley circuit. You know, I mean, we can't. So we, we, we just stopped um, the process of, of pretty quickly of exploring disaffiliation. What was the reception in the conference? Oh, I mean, it, it was it was by and large. This is over. Let's move. Let's move ahead. Traditional plan. Let's let's move forward. Um, we didn't have the immediate issue in the conference of churches that had begun holding weddings openly. Or boards of ministry pushing forward candidates who are openly gay. Um now, that said, what I also tell people is the dirty little secret is there's been gay weddings happening in South Georgia for years now. And if you don't think they're not happening, you got another thing coming. I could name you a dozen retired clergy who have done gay weddings at some point or another. They take them out to the beach. They meet them under a shade tree. They go out to the river. I mean, they do little weddings all the time. Um, but it, it, it's not been the immediate tension of... <clears throat> you know, the, the, the pushing. And so South Georgia really assumed a sense of uniformity or assumption that we're, we're uniform about this. So after we decided not to disaffiliate, then of course, you know, in the evolution, all this, of course, COVID happens, everyone hits pause. We, we basically, I think the ethos took about a year of like, we can't think about, you know, moving ahead because everyone's struggling locally. Then around 2021, we began thinking by that time, the protocol had begun to come together, um, different things around that. Um, and so for us with the protocol, the assumption in South Georgia by the vast majority is we would leave as an annual conference, which meant that my church would need to look for a new annual conference home because we weren't going with them. And we knew that. So I pivoted at that point to how can we create a remnant of South Georgia to try to pitch ourselves to a North Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, whoever, to say, here's a remnant of a couple of churches and about a dozen clergy who want to, to leave and join you. What was a monumental day in South Georgia was the day Judicial Council said, nope, Annual conferences are not leaving. It's not legal. That was the watershed moment. All of a sudden, and I, I was blown away. I'll, I'll admit it. I was like, wow. And my folks said, what does that mean? And I said, I think the path of least resistance for us that's always been there just became the pathway. Just stay who we are. Stay what we are. Stay the course. This is gonna. This is coming to us now. 
we spent years at Trinity and my predecessor was kind of big about being the antagonist about it. Um, we were going against the grain of South Georgia. Well, all of a sudden in the last couple of years, the connections coming to us. So now we are saying we're the future of Methodism. How can we be leaders? We talk about how can we be leaders? How can we be servant leaders? How can we do it humbly, but courageously? And how can we lift up voices and stories within our church and beyond to say, this is Methodism, guys. You know, it, it, it is now moving in this direction. Um, all these little stories of, oh, if this happens and if this happens, and I'm sitting here going, you're trying to put a pebble in the crack of a dam that's about to burst. And that's not to say that you can that there's not a place for traditional United Methodists or churches that don't want to do gay weddings. I, I hope that there is a place for churches to discern that. You don't have to do one. I think about my friend John Stevens, the Pod Have Mercy um, uh, podcast. He did a wonderful episode with an Episcopal priest in Houston, fastest growing Episcopal church in America. They don't do same-sex weddings. People assume that it's mandated in the in the Episcopal Church, and I'm like, no, it's not. It's your choice. Now, the majority have chosen this way, but it's not mandated. So I'm not saying that there's not going to be a place for traditional United Methodists, but what I am saying is we are moving toward a more inclusive denomination. This is about to become mainstream, um, and and we need to welcome it and not fight against it. But for those of us who have an easier time welcoming it, I think we have a, a, a duty to our brothers and sisters who are behind us on the journey to help bring them along lovingly. I don't need to rub your nose in it at this point. I have watched and noted that more than once, Self-avowed traditionalist on Twitter, specifically, have thanked you publicly for the way that you have engaged with them. Um, spoken about them. So, talk to me a little bit about that. Like how how you're able to hold such a firm, affirming theology and position and do what some of us just don't have the capacity to do right now, to offer grace to those who've hurt us. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a friend who likes to make fun of me and he says, you're every traditionalist favorite progressive on Twitter. And I'm like, I'm not sure that's a compliment. One of the things in the last year that has helped me is I am now a person in long-term recovery. So there's an element now, I can't say always, but now of trying to live every day, <clears throat> recognizing my powerlessness over people, places, and things, Acknowledging the power of God that I'm desperately in need of and surrendering my life and my will to that 
love, and care. That's the first three steps of the 12 steps. Now, there's also a whole lot of work in my own character defects and my own need to get past those and all of that. Bill W. blew me away, and, and he put words on something that I think I felt at times like that you may be naming, but I didn't know how to name it, and sometimes it may have been my own ego that was primary in my brain, but but now I think I have a better frame of reference for In step four, we go through your own character defects and all this other stuff in the big book. And then Bill Wilson slips this little line <clears throat> in there where he says, and and those that you deal with, you know, he talks about anger and resentment and all this other stuff. And always remember that they are spiritually sick too. Because as, as a person in recovery, I now know we're all sick spiritually. And there's a certain way we can look at each other differently if we see each other as vulnerable. Um, and a lot of that is born out of my own acknowledgement now of the need for grace. Because for years of ministry, I led a lie. I was a humble leader and all this other stuff on the outside. And I was a, a, a daily drinker for anxiety, stress, restlessness, irritability. I could stew about things, about you, about resentments, about anger, all this stuff. I didn't know how to do. I didn't know how to deal with my own feelings. And on the surface, I was perfect or strive, I'd strive to be perfect for everybody. But deep down inside, I had this dis-ease that alcohol quenched until it couldn't anymore. And so I've been on a journey recently of coming to terms with myself and getting comfortable in my own skin. So I don't, I don't know if that's a good answer other than... I also want to acknowledge this, Derek, and 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 and, and I'm going to try to word this in a way that I mean, and I don't want it to come out wrong. There are people like you who have been hurt in this process that you need space to deal with and grieve and process that hurt. I should not expect you in the midst of that to offer grace automatically to people you feel have hurt you. Now that said, we are Christians and Jesus says, bless those who persecute you and all this Come other on. stuff. Yep. Yep. So if nothing else, could not the beauty of our connection be, if you're not able to offer grace and I'm more able out of my privilege, should I not sacrifice something? Mm. I offer grace to my traditionalist friends because I love them. And I have lots of friends who I love dearly, who we don't agree on this issue. I, I want the GMC to thrive. Hmm. I know that may sound strange to some people, but I want it to thrive. I want them to come together. I don't want them manipulating. I don't want them lying. I don't want them to come to this place out of this, this um, defamation of who they are and where they came from. And I resent that because, because I've been so formed by this tradition. You know, 
you may not want to be in the family anymore, but don't trash us on the way out. I, mm. I have a whole lot of problem with that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I'm okay. If you, if you need to go be faithful to God and your calling over here, okay, I can, we, we can, we can coexist. Mm. But I think it's unfair, quite frankly, to expect LGBT people to be the, the, the initiators of grace sometimes because that diminishes the hurt that's very real that does not get acknowledged enough it's almost like we're like well you know bless those who persecute you and you're like wait a minute you haven't given a moment's glance to my hurt and pain hmm. so so hmm. i guess I, that's a long-winded way of saying i don't have the same experience that you do hmm. so just like we could sing on sundays and if you don't have the faith to sing one Sunday because life's got you down. I could sing for you. It's the beauty of connection. It's the communion of saints, right? I, I mean, I think I can offer grace, which we need to do in the end, ultimately to some degree. Um, but if everyone's not ready to be there and I can be there, then I want to be there. And I, and I hope that that doesn't compromise also my love for you. And 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 the people in my church that I serve. So that's again, that's that southern paradox that we live in. That it, two things can be true at the same time. Ben, everything you just said is so powerful, both personally for me, but I, I think, you know, one, Twitter is just a horrible context. Oh, it's garbage to do relational work. Yeah. I mean, it really is, um, and I've and I've learned it the hard way, um, you know, to have a conversation. <laughs> it's just not a really great place to do it. It's it's a place where it happens, regardless of if it's the best place or not. It happens there, and you said earlier, you know, it it's it is kind of like we met in this hospital. Yeah, and we have we're we're not just seeing ourselves in these compromised positions. We're in many ways, and this is pinging even to. Your, and I, I really appreciate you sharing about your journey uh, of sobriety, um, but it pings to the fact that we're seeing each other in our sickness. Oh, yeah. And in, in the mask that we are wearing, um, the, the talking points we're giving out that we want to be seen as holding. And Twitter is not a great place for relational work. And actually it has the ability to do a lot of harm to relationships. And I think we're all figuring that out sure. around Twitter. But I also, you know, I, I do appreciate what you said because it just illuminates the fact that this is actually really hard. Mm -hmm. Like the thing that we are going through in the United Methodist Church, um, I, I heard someone say this once um, and I've used it with other folks. Um, this is hard because it's hard. It's not hard because there's something wrong with us or we right. miss something along the way. No, this is hard because it's hard. It's hard to not take these things personally. It's hard to not get uh, wrapped up in games of resentment. Um, that are rooted in real pain and, and disappointments and uh, egos and ambitions. Um, and by the way, if you were to share that in a recovery room, somebody in that room is going to tell you, congratulations, welcome to being a human being. Gosh, This is part of being human. 
that life disappoints. And we right-size ourselves that we're not so big that we think we can conquer everything. And we're not so small that we think everything's against us. We're just us. And we're humans. Some days are good. Some days are not so good. Feelings come. We process them. And we move along. I would drink about them. Mm -hmm. Friends would drink or use about them, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just we're humans, and and this is hard because it's hard because being a human being is hard. And on top of that, trying to do it and be a disciple of Jesus Christ is hard. Yeah. One of the conversations that I have with those who might identify as traditionalists, uh, who also feel called to stay in the United Methodist Church is is the fear, the question of how how they stay. For people who have spent most of our lives in the majority with privilege, it is terribly frightening to feel as though we're about to be marginalized. Now, the truth is, it's like that picture of, um, you know, with the kids looking over the fence to the baseball field and, and it's it's redefining, you know, all the all the things. Justice and, and equity. That's and, right. Justice, yeah. equity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All the stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's you know, it's a misconception. It feels as though you're losing something when it's simply that everybody's now going to enjoy a share, hopefully, of what you've enjoyed. Because you naturally have to give up a little bit of something for for everybody to enjoy. So it's easy to take on a negative mindset from for that. What people don't realize is that the love of God is never meant to be a pie that you cut into slices. And some of us get feel like we get bigger pieces than others. Jesus never said a parable about the kingdom of God is like a pie. We slice it 12 ways for 12 equal pieces. What did he say? Kingdom of God is like yeast. It grows. So it's helping people see you're not losing so much as we're all gaining. We're mm. growing mm. through this together. Now I know it feels like a pie and you just gotten your slice cut in half so someone else could have a piece but it's about yeast that grows. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think there's that. I also think, I mean, the first, my first thought was Derek, who better for them to talk to than you? Who knows what it's like to be marginalized and not that you owe them anything, but you you have a gift to give now, mm. you know, um, that in our weakness, God is made strong. And in the weakness of marginalization, the, the light of Christ is made stronger in you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what you can do is meet them in a way that that even I can't. Because I'm just the other side that looks just like them, but I'm, quote, winning. You can meet them in a way that says, I know what you're feeling because I've lived that most of my life. Now let me show you the way and walk with you. And the power of story is that we really, as diverse as we are, we share a lot more commonality than we realize. 
And so when their story can be told through you, all of a sudden they don't feel quite so alone. That's what the great fear of marginalization for people who are privileged really is about. It's not about the loss of power. It's about the fear that I'm going to be alone. And I'm desperately afraid of being alone. Ben, what's your hope for the United Methodist Church? I think my most basic hope for the United Methodist Church is that we say what we mean and we mean what we say. I'm, I'm tired of circles where we play church and I'm tired of perpetuating institutions because it's comfortable or benefits me or people who look like me. <clears throat> I want to do something that my children can be proud of and not just that can benefit my bank account. And I want to be a part of a church that is honest and tells the truth and meets people in life, especially where it hurts most, because that's where Jesus met them, and does big things in sacrificial ways, and that we're not afraid to lose ourselves for the sake of the gospel. Ben Gosden, I'm just really grateful for you for your ministry and your witness. Um, and all that you're teaching me about what it means to be someone living in the tension of two or more things being true at the same time. Uh, you're very kind. I'm grateful for you, Derek, and your witness and leadership and courage to keep showing up for the sake of the church um, and the courage to keep shining your light for the rest of us to see. Thanks for joining me today, Ben. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.